0: Well, I'm super glad to see you.
1: I'm super glad to
0: see you. All right, (laughs) you. Yeah, in the last year, I've been told that before. Yeah, yeah, that's too soon. Oh, I don't know where Jason is. I part. I just feel like spending the next hour unpacking that absolutely stupendous talk by my goodness. That was, that was just terrific. That's worth the, the price of admission. That and um, the lunch trip to Stanley's yesterday. Uh, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this last year is about our uh, daily rhythms and habits and practices and rituals. Uh, particularly because so many of them have been disrupted this last year, as I imagine for you they have been as well. And I don't, I don't know how much time you actually uh, spend thinking about uh, what you do every day. I mean, I have a certain, I have a certain rhythm. There's a certain groove. I, I get up at, uh, I get up at five o'clock usually to go play tennis. At 5.30, I'm in the gym. I, somewhere in there, I check my phone, usually before my Bible, I hate to admit it. And I check to see how my, my mother-in-law is doing with COVID to see if there's an update. And then I check to see if LeBron James played and, you know, to see if he recovered from his high ankle sprain. And there's this kind of routine. I kind of scroll, and I make breakfast and so on. I mean, it's just a very, there's a certain rhythm to the day. And I imagine that if we were to do an analysis of your, of your daily practices, you would begin to see certain patterns. I think one of, the, one of the fun rituals that I have uh, at night is tucking my kids in, and this is something that I've done uh, every night, and even now, so I have four kids, and even now the 14-year-old and the 17-year-old boys will actually still call me up, and there's this ritual to say, "'Daddy, are you coming?' And then I'll be up in the study and I'll say, Well, coming for what, Jonathan? And uh, coming to give me scratches, he says. It's like, okay, what? Like, how good is my life that my 14 year old son wants me to tuck him in? And then we have this special routine where I I have this like this massager and I massage his back and then I give him scratches and then I actually crack his back and so there's like 250 reasons why there's like a grown man atop him I crack his back and he goes oh that feels good and then he kind of nestles in and then there is this ritual that's actually controversial in our home, where I. I basically give him something that we call tickle death and it lasts until my wife actually can, can no longer handle the screaming in our house. And for some reason, I actually think this relaxes him. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that's, a, that's a ritual that we, that we have. Uh, John Gottman, who's a, a psychologist and a family therapist, has done a lot, lot of research on family rituals and has actually shown that the patterns... And the rights and habits of couples when they when they leave in the morning and when they return to each other at night are actually one of the greatest predictors for marital happiness. So he says that apparently a and this is this might be the key, a distraction-free physical acknowledgement of our spouses in the morning and again at night, perhaps with a hug and a kiss. So just A face-to-face acknowledgement of who they are is the single greatest predictor for marital happiness. And one of the things, of course, that they have learned is that when people live together, they develop patterns, fixed patterns that are essentially rituals of connection or rituals of disconnection. And eventually, the pattern of those interactions becomes so predictable that we actually begin to expect how we are going to be related to in the morning or upon our reunion at the end of the day. So you can have a, a dysfunctional or a functional pattern of interaction, and uh, that, that is going to be a great predictor for uh, how, how much you flourish in your, in your relationship now i want to show you a couple of uh, axioms quips quotes that that summarize what we do with our daily lives. And, and it'd be interesting to see if you find them incredibly encouraging and refreshing, or if you find them frightening. Uh, one of the, and, and you, you will have seen some of these. Annie Dillard has said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Now, before I read the rest of that quote, and you can leave that up there for a moment, you know, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. It actually reminds me, so I was, I became a, I was called to ministry when I was 16, and when you're, you know, when you're barely, I'm still, you know, wet behind the ears with the waters of baptism, and this, this call to ministry, and I feel like, you know, changing the world. And and I remember about uh, 15 years into ministry, one of my parishioners called me on the, about like 10 o'clock, on the 4th of July, in a hot panic, uh, because she, and she she calls with this. Urgency in her voice because she was summoning her pastor to come to her double wide in Sacramento, where we were living, because her cat had been attacked by Africanized honeybees at a 4th of July cookout and was having a severe allergic reaction to it. And the cat was literally breaking out in hives and said, she says like, if you do not come to my house and lay hands on my cat, he will die of anaphylactic shock. And she was dead serious. So if I would please come over to her house uh, and lay hands on her cat. And then I'm thinking, okay, how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives. And this is now what my, my life has come to. Annie Dillard says this, what we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. A schedule defends from chaos and whim. It is a net for catching days. It is a scaffolding on which a worker can stand and labor with both hands at sections of time. A schedule is a mock-up of reason and order, willed, faked, and so brought into being. Let me show you a few others. And again, I don't know if you find these incredibly reinvigorating or frightening. Augustine said, You are what you love. St. Clair of Assisi said, "Uh, We become what we love, and who we love shapes what we become. If we love things, we become a thing. Or this one from Jacob Needleman I am my attention. Or, and this one is frightening, I think particularly those of the Texan persuasion, uh, you are what you eat. Or William Blake said, they become what they behold. Sherry Turkle, uh, we are shaped by our tools. Uh, Will Durant, "We we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. We become what we normalize, or as David Dark puts it, we become what we normalize, like it or not. What we do with our force of habit is what we do and will have done with our lives the sum total of what we were up to, or Jeffrey Beale in his uh, stellar book on idolatry, uh, we become what we worship, Uh, what people revere, they resemble Either for ruin or for restoration. Now, I, I, I know that these, in a, in a way, these, these axioms can be a healthy dose of reality, or maybe even a warning and a summons, or a dose of of daily inspiration. But it is, it is also quite frightening to think that what I do or don't do becomes the sum total of what my life is about, that I am only the product of my energies and attention and affection. Now, of course, There is part of us has to acknowledge that, yes, these things are very true and real, but part of me also feels like saying, yes, Lord, let the condescending blood and mercy of Jesus Christ be over it all. Because it is frightening to think that the collage of my activities is actually only my life and that I am the sum total of everything I do. Oh, God, may it not be. And yet, uh, rituals change our lives. Rituals are our lives. And so one of the the enduring questions that I wrestle with are actually, I'm haunted a little bit by something that Walker Percy and something that Blaise Pascal said. They raise incredibly important questions. Uh, Pascal, the French philosopher, put it this way. Man's sensitivity to little things and insensitivity to the greatest things are marks of a strange disorder. And that makes me wonder, do I I love the right things with the right intensity, with the right focus to the proper proportions? Are With Augustine, are my loves properly ordered or do I have the marks of a strange disorder? I, I wonder also with Walker Percy and his a uh, strange and funky and interesting book, lost in the cosmos, which is, uh, according to his own um, ideas, the last self-help book. Uh, he he imagines an extraterrestrial coming to our world and actually trying to bring some kind of an analysis of who we are and what we are doing. And he says, you live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great scientific and technological advances, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he is doing. The the very last paragraph of Lost in the Cosmos imagines this extraterrestrial coming to interrogate Us mere mortals here on this planet, and I I have found these words to be so haunting. Here's what he's. Here's how the book ends. Repeat. Do you read? Do you read? Are you in trouble? How did you get in trouble? If you are in trouble, have you sought help? If you did, did help come? If it did, did you accept it? What is the character of your consciousness? Are you conscious? Do you have a self? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you are doing? Do you love? Do you know how to love? Are you loved? Do you hate? Do you read me? Come back. Repeat. Come back. Come back. Come back. So I I wonder if in our habits and rituals, if we are just so on automatic pilot, if we are so focused on the, the little things that do not matter, and that it is the the, the greatest danger in all of that is that we actually lose our grasp of what the whole thing is about and that it is very easy to actually not get the single most important thing, that is a full personal grasp of the grace of God. So the the question that that has provoked me in both of my talks is how do we get a deep personal knowledge of the grace of God? particularly in an incredibly volatile world with so much stimulation, so much distraction, so much resentment and anger and disordered affections, how do we actually grasp the grace of God? I, I've, I found what I, what I will propose is, what, I think, maybe a few attempts at an answer to that question in the uh, a little volume by Alexander Schmemann, the Orthodox Christian uh, priest, teacher, and writer. In, in his book, The Eucharist, and this, this, may, this may ruffle some feathers here, I think, but in what, it, what some would argue is his, his greatest theological and literary achievement, he says this, now, and this, by the way, was written in 1983. He says, meanwhile, it can be said, without exaggeration, that we live in a frightening and spiritually dangerous age. It is frightening not just because of its hatred, division, and bloodshed. It is frightening above all because it is characterized by a mounting rebellion against God and his kingdom. Not God, but man has become the measure of all things. Not faith, but ideology and utopian escapism are determining the spiritual state of the world. And then this, perhaps many people will be astonished that in response to this crisis of man becoming the measure of all things, I propose that we turn our attention not to its various aspects, but rather to the sacrament of the Eucharist and of the church, whose very life flows from that sacrament. Yes, I do believe that precisely here, in this holy of holies of the church, in this ascent to the table of the Lord in his kingdom, is the source of that renewal for which we hope. And I do believe, as the church has always believed, that his upward journey begins with laying aside all earthly cares, with leaving this adulterous and sinful world. No ideological fuss and bother, but a gift from heaven, such is the vocation of the church in the world, the source of her service. Now, I've sat with that, that little paragraph for a couple of weeks now, and I believe it is astonishing. It is written in 1983, so you, we, might, we could even quibble or arm wrestle about whether or not you think he was incredibly naive to think, okay, what did they know in 1983 in terms of real troubles and the challenges that they were facing? It was like child's play compared to what we are dealing with now. You could argue about whether or not you think things right now are easier or more difficult, but what Shmayman is saying, That in a world of bloodshed and hatred and anger and resentment, the place where we get our energy from is not that man, that human beings are the ultimate reference point, but that there should be a transcendent reference point, distinctly supernatural, otherworldly, from a different planet. And then throughout this book, he actually makes the audacious claim to not be overly pragmatic and dedicate ourselves to humanitarian efforts or political change out of some kind of naivete about reaching utopia, he is not pragmatically focused because he does not believe that man is the measure of all things. Neither, and, this is, and this is, I'm sure this is going to offend someone and or at least will require some clarification Shmaman does not reduce Christianity to an inordinate concern for social justice or radical change, as needed as it is. But as a priest, he is most intensely focused on not losing the transcendental and supernatural reference point in our life for the world. Essentially, he is saying that we are not fundamentally helped by a non-religious, immanentistic, secular, moral orientation with only a humanitarian approach. He does not reduce Christianity to a humanitarian moral message. He points to the supernatural gift given to the church in the Eucharist. I think in some ways, to put it in plain speak, Shmaman is saying we need to keep Christianity weird. We need to keep it distinctly supernatural. And so anyway, so I'm curious about the power of rites and rituals and sacraments. Now I know uh, this, this subject matter will make several of us nervous for various reasons. Uh, some of us are nervous that this is another form of uh, legalism and becomes the new law, it becomes the new performancism. Or if you are uh, Baptist-y, you might worry about the rites and the rituals and the sacraments becoming too formulaic or too rote or too superstitious or too magical and so therefore not genuine. Also, this, this I, I hope this does not feel in any way like an indictment to Mockingbird at all, because I just got the Mockingbird sticker from Brian, and I'm going to put it on my Bible probably. So I'm I'm fan number one. But I I sometimes wonder if Mock Mockingbirdians, uh, if I don't know if that's a word, it may be guilty of this, where we we overemphasize the mind, we overemphasize the power of the mind and ideas, and we think that that human knowledge is primarily mental, which is that they are unmindfully associated with extra physical faculties. Here's maybe a better way to explain it. It's as if there is this dichotomy between our thinking and our acting, that our thinking happens in our minds and that our acting happens in the body and that the assumption is that the mind is for thinking and the body is for acting but it would be very ironic that inadvertently at Mockingbird we have a conceptual and ideological commitment to a low anthropology, but that we actually have a high anthropology of the mind, a high view of the power of ideas to be able to affect some kind of change. I wonder if sometimes Mockingbird has a tacit high anthropology of the mind, that if just we get the right ideas about law and grace, about who we are, etc. But one of the things that I want to propose is that Christianity is a thoroughly embodied faith. The way that we use our bodies teaches not only what our bodies are for, but what our humanity is for. For the geeks, in some ways, I'm suggesting, I'm wondering if there is a subtle docetism in some of our thinking. Let me give you a couple of examples as to what I, what I want to suggest from the scriptures. Uh, you, you see in the, in the Bible that uh, the faith expression, the rituals and rites and sacraments are uh, of a very particular kind. I'm going to give you a couple of quick examples. Let's see, uh, Genesis 15, uh, God promises something to Abraham Uh, And Abraham does not trust the promise. And then, Lord, watch what happens. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Okay, so that's the promise. Abraham doesn't quite promise. He doesn't, has no idea how God is actually going to pull that up, pull that off. God's answer to Abraham's unbelief and to his doubt is not by giving him a set of ideas or a book or a talk. He says, here is a ritual. And then the text says, here is how you will know. Or literally the Hebrew says, knowing that you shall know In other words, just verbal recitation is not enough. It is insufficient. The knowledge that Yahweh wants for Abraham is an embodied participation in a very particular covenantal ritual. So Abraham's basically said, well, how shall I know that I shall possess it? That sounds like a That sounds like a kind of a left-brain thinking ideological question. He says, oh, God says, okay, I get it. If you want to know how this promise is going to be fulfilled, bring me some animals. Practice a rite. Begin the covenant ceremony. How shall I know? You first begin to know this through not a theoretical text or a theological exam, but a ritual participation. Let me give you another example. Exodus 10, Lord says to Moses, "'Go unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart "'and the heart of his servants, "'that I may show these signs of mine among them, "'and that you may tell in the hearing of your son "'and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly "'with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, "'that you may know that I am the Lord.'" So the the formation of the next generation, the cultivation of the shared imagination of the existence of God for the children comes through the rites and practices and signs of God. Let me give you another example, Exodus 12. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. So there's a pedagogy of ritual. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep a service. And when your children say, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, And so the child wants to get their sense of identity. They want to get their bearings in the world. They want to know something about the past and the present and the future. And the answer to that question is, the location services offered to them are, here is a ritual and this is how you will be able to make sense of the world. Because if you don't have the ritual because of a low anthropology of human memory, because you are going to forget... I want you to do this every week. I want you to do this every quarter. I want you to do this every season and every year. So in some ways, I think the Bible actually has a a low anthropology. And because of that, we need a high soteriology, which demands a high sacramentology. Exodus 13. Unleavened bread you shall eat for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no... Leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. After all, you are what you eat. You shall tell your son on that day it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. So now a meal, an ordinary meal, has been transformed, not just from lunch or dinner, but it becomes a way of knowing who God is and what he has done and how reality works. Let me give you just two more slides, uh, two more examples. Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel, and above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths for that weekly High recurrence activity is a new calendric cycle. In other words, the way that you organize your time is around this weekly ritual. Perhaps the clearest for me is this last one in Leviticus 23. Uh, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, and then here, that. Your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I don't, I don't think there's a better example. So in order for them to know who God is, in order for them to receive the resurrecting grace of God, they need to practice Sukkot and live in booths. Because the deep, implicit assumptions of their lives need to be made explicit through the ritual. And what is more explicit than actually sitting in a booth outside of your house for seven days? Because when you're outside, you're going to know, okay, we're not inside. Why are we not inside? Good question. I'm so glad you asked. Because it is by sitting outside in these booths that you will know that God has rescued us with his strong arm. I I mean, I I could give you many, many more examples, but I think, in a way, this is what Annie Dillard would approve of because the way that we spend our lives, the way that we spend our Sabbaths and our seasons is, of course, the way we live our lives. And it is these structures and these habits and these practices that actually become a way for us to know the grace of God. Uh, There's a fabulous little book called Human Rights written by Drew Johnson of King's College in uh, in New York City, a lot of my ideas are really inspired, in a, 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 a in some ways, a starting point for uh, for what I think has been helpful to me. And let me give you a couple of um, basic ideas in a nutshell as to why I think this matters so much. First of all, I think that rituals help us know. Drew Johnson would say that there is an embedded epistemology. Because these rituals dispose you to see something that you would not be able to see without the Sabbath. You would not be able to know this without the Feast of Booths. You would not be able to understand or see the world without the celebration of the Passover. So it allows you the rites and the rituals enable you to see something that you cannot see without them. Because knowing comes from performing scripted actions. So these children know not just by getting Bible lessons or Sunday school, but they know through these rituals. Uh, Jamie Smith of Calvin has also done a lot of work on this in his book, You Are What You Love, and in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. Here's how he would put it. Discipleship and spiritual formation are less about erecting an edifice of knowledge, then they are a matter of developing a Christian know-how that intuitively understands the world in the light of the gospel. Here's another another insight that I found helpful. Rituals use the body to to tell the soul, Because as, as Smith says, as an education, there is a constellation of practices, r- rituals, and routines that inculcates a particular vision of the good life by inscribing or infusing that vision into the heart or the gut by means of material or embodied practices. So let's say let me let me put it in, in, in layman's terms. If you learning occurs in the body. I remember when I, was, uh, when I was a recent immigrant to the United States at age 23, my wife actually had to teach me how to drive. She was my girlfriend at the time. It's, a, it's a really a small, like modern day miracle that we actually made that. So she had to teach me how to pop the clutch. I did not know how to do that. She could have explained it to me, but I actually had to learn with my body how to pop the clutch. I'm an avid tennis player, and there is, a, there is a ritual, there is a practice. You have to find a way to recognize when you see a short ball coming to you and how to put it away properly. You only learn that by actually doing it. If you're a basketball player, you know how to actually physically with your body to do a jab step, or if you're a piano player, a pentatonic scale, or you have to learn with your body, with your hands, how to produce an italic script with a fountain pen. So learning about is not the same as learning to do. Because Bubba can read 12 books about auto mechanics, but I will not trust Bubba to work on my car. So in in some ways, the the body informs the soul. I I, I want to give you what I think think is a a great example of this. I I was introduced by a friend of mine who's a fly fisher guide uh, in Montana to a a couple named Tom and Jerry Morgan. And uh, Tom was one of the greatest fly fishing rod craftsmen in the world. And my, my friend Jason is actually... Uh, had Tom Morgan make several of these fly fishing rods for him. So, they, so they, live, they live in Montana and they have figured out a way to develop what they call thought rods, which are the instruments that you fish with that are seen as an extension of the mind. And so they, they make it for every particular customer in a very detailed, very specific way because they know that it is through their hands and through their bodies and through these practices that they actually learn how to do this. And I wanna show you just a quick video that introduces uh, Tom and Jerry to you.
1: Considering the quality of materials, the perfection in craftsmanship, and the attention to detail, Tom Morgan Rod Smith Fly Rods are the finest instruments of their kind in the world. A little over 20 years ago, Tom Morgan sold his business, the iconic Winston Rod Company. It was a time in Tom's life that he drove a convertible sports car and was courting Jerry, the woman who would become his wife. It was also when Tom began walking with a slight limp. It was the beginning of muscular sclerosis. Today, high on a hill between the Madison and Gallatin is the home of Tom and Jerry's current business and the center of their incredible journey.
2: I grew up uh, guiding fishermen around southwestern Montana. I've really developed a good sense of what it takes to make a great fishing rod. Then after I design okay. them, my only involvement is looking down the rod for straightness or lining up the guides or lining up the real seats. Oh, that's perfect. Jerry does all the finished work on all the rods. I'm not his hands, because people want to think, they want to say I'm his hands. I'm I'm my own hands, and I want to be as integral in the creative process as he is. So, not I can't design rods, but you know, how we figure out problems and things. Jerry and I try to build our rods to the uh, very highest level. And one thing that we've really discovered is uh, it's either right or it's, it's not towards your very perfection side. is is really what you're you're aiming for, which is a different different kind of work it um It's a different kind of purpose in a way the one gift that I have is that I almost never ever think that i have m s oh that's perfect journey i'm still Tom Morgan with ms i'm not ms i dwell on what we can do not what we can't do so i can continue my life as the person i really am when the rods go out of here they're just as close to perfection as i believe anybody could make
1: them you don't need a stradivarius to play the violin or a steinway to play the piano but for the reasons that those things are important well, they're the same reason for Tom Morgan, Rod Smith, Rods. This is Mike Gurnett out with Montana's Fish, Wildlife
0: and Parks. So if you, if you were to look at their, their lives, you would see, and, and, and Tom has since passed away, but uh, there would be uh, 35 steps to get Tom ready for bed. And then there are 26 steps to assemble and attach a real seat. So there's, there's these, this very intricate practice and these rituals that they have. And this was actually the way that Tom was able to pass on the, the knowledge that he had about his craft through the physical practices to his, his wife. And so I think that this is why the embodied practice is so incredibly important. Here's how Matthew Crawford puts it in his book, Shop Class as Soul Craft. He says, you can't hammer a nail over the internet. You need that hammer in your hands in order to know the weight and how it actually works. Also, I think rituals help us tell time. And you see this, I wish I had, I had more time to, to go into this, but I, I think one of the things that you see particularly in the way that the Israelites had to make sense of the world is that the Sabbath or the Passover, this season, this lectionary and liturgical calendar that they had was one way of making sense of the past, the present, and the future. And they actually believed that every time that they practiced one of these rituals, it wasn't only symbolic, they practiced what we now, what theologians now call, anamnesis. Do this in remembrance of me. And that means basically that they believed that the same God that was at work in the past is now at work in the present, and that it is not just something that we remember conceptually, but we believe that while he rescued us from Egypt, even though this might be 500 years later, God is doing it all over again. This actually is actually a powerful way for us to understand when we celebrate the Eucharist together, that this is not simply a memorial. This is not simply thinking about times of the past. This actually means that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is himself here today in a very real, very real way, saving us, redeeming us, reminding us of the bloody sacrifice for us. And it is as real today as it ever has been before. And that actually helps us make sense of the past and the present and the future. So uh, rituals help us tell time. And then, and then finally, rituals are, uh, are training in awe. I love, for some reason, I've, I've never, I'd never paid attention to this passage in Luke 22, where Jesus says, after they've been quibbling about who's the greatest, he says, you are those who have stayed With me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. Q. Alexander Shmaman, we have been assigned a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there, Jesus actually tells us that our great assignment in this world is not simply the humanitarian improvement, but to bring something much better and bigger and even more redemptive than all of that, a kingdom that is unshakable. And what's interesting is that Jesus actually points to something very specific. He says, I want you to to come with me in my kingdom and sit at a table. How powerful will it be for all of those of you of the Maciabertian persuasion to actually begin to see every daily meal as an opportunity for a grace-laced encounter with the living God. That in every bite of food that I eat and every sip of drink that I have, I am actually experiencing once again a foretaste of the very thing that Jesus had made possible for us. And so every time I gather with my family, with my children, or with my friends, with my wife at our dinner table there is an opportunity for us uh, to point to the very thing that we have been assigned to, namely the kingdom. Uh, do I have time to make a few comments in closing? Where, uh, you're saying you have one minute? No, have, you have an hour. Go ahead. I have, oh, praise Jesus. Oh, say less. That's like, that's like telling sicken to a dog. No, that's, that's, that's but seriously,
1: three minutes.
0: Okay, so... <laughs> Okay, so in some ways I'm making the argument for having a robust sacramentology and understanding the supernaturally formative power of habits and rituals and rites. And here's a few things that I think this this reminds us of. This is why it's important. First of all, it it reminds us of the, the priesthood of all human beings. That as far as God is concerned, from the very beginning of his design, He has designed every man and every woman to live into their primary calling that is defined as living with God, living before the face of God. This is the purpose for human existence, to live with God. So before we are anything else, before we are performers, before we are workers, we are primarily priests who have a holy and supernatural calling to live in the very presence of God. And this is where Shemem is incredibly consistent. He says, the first, the basic definition of man is that he is a priest. Now, friends, remember that this is not just true for religious folks. This is true for every human being on the planet. This is our design. This is our telos. He stands in the center of the world and unifies it in his act of blessing of both receiving the world from God and offering it to God. And by filling this world with the Eucharist, he transforms his life, the one that he receives from the world, into life in God into communion with him. The world was created as the matter, the material of one all-embracing Eucharist, and man was created as the priest of this cosmic sacrament. It's a reminder of the priesthood of all human beings. And secondly, I think keeping, uh, keeping Christianity weird and supernatural is a way of reminding us of the insufficiency of everything humanly attainable. Maybe we are not going to change the world. This is actually one of the things that I found so puzzling when I, got to, when I moved to the United States. Having grown up uh, in the Netherlands, uh, I had never heard a Christian say the, wor- the words, we must go change the world, because we know you're, you're not special. <laughs> And you are not going to change the world. The world is going to change you. You bear with the world. You wait on the world. You pray for the world. You are in the world, but we, we do not change. Well, no, actually, I think everything humanly attainable, all our brilliance, notwithstanding, we need to come face-to-face with the limits of what is humanly attainable. And as Shemayman said, maybe the main thing, the best thing, the most important thing about us is, is not something that we accomplish, but it is a gift given to us from heaven. Yes. So what is higher in man finds its ultimate, ultimate source in something that is higher still. Uh, thirdly, I think, I think this reminds us of the importance of Cultivating institutions and cultures, churches and schools and homes and businesses that are infused with habits and practices and rituals of grace. That means that we pay attention to what we are doing, not as the new legalism, but because we take the joy of the good news of God for tired sinners so seriously, we want to see it infused and inculcated in absolutely everything we do. Now, Will Willeman puts it this way. He says, The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different So completely changed from the way the world builds a community. That there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. That's my prayer for for this church, for Tyler, for Mockingbird, that somehow we would begin to develop the kinds of communities that are so singularly focused on the gift of grace that is given to undeserving believers Sinners and saints, given to them prodigally, extravagantly, beyond their deserving, and that we would actually build our institutions on that and not simply on what we can do through our own human agency. And then finally, I was was fascinated by when preachers say, finally, you know, it's like, then five minutes later, it's like, in closing, uh, it, fourth, it reminds us that small things are not small things. And uh, to quote the, uh, the brilliant uh, Andy Gullahorn again, he says in a song, knowing small things matter is really no small thing. Knowing small things matter changes everything. And I think particularly that maybe the simplest way that we can begin is by changing how we share our meals with one another, with friends or with roommates, uh, around the dinner table. Maybe one of the most formative things you can do for the spiritual formation and catechesis of the next generation is to infuse your breakfast and lunch and dinner time with one another with an awareness of the grace of God. Bonhoeffer says, Through our daily meals, he is calling us to rejoice, to keep Holy Day in the midst of our working day. I do this in remembrance of me, the supernatural power of ritual. Thank you very much.